you're someone who has a passion for cut flowers, our environment, and wants to make the world more beautiful, you're in the right place. Whether you're growing flowers for pleasure or profit, I'm on a mission to empower flower enthusiasts and professionals to help change the world around them. Whether you're just starting out and need a helping hand, or are looking to scale a substantial flower business, I'm your cut flower woman. Welcome to the Cut Flower Podcast. Hello and welcome everybody. I am joined today by Dave Goulson, Professor of Biology at the University of Sussex. And Dave has a special interest in ecology, especially bees and insects. A renowned author and writer of numerous papers, I am really delighted as an environmental student myself, I did environmental science, I'm delighted to welcome Dave to our new series. So Dave, do tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got to where you are today at a professor at a university. Where did it, where, what happened? What got you there? Oh, um, good question. Uh, I, I guess I just have always been interested in, in nature and particularly in, in insects since I was a little kid. You know, I can't really explain why different kids have different kind of obsessions, <laughs> don't they? And for me, I was yeah. always, I, I, when I was at primary school, you know, I used to go around looking for caterpillars in the in the hedge and sticking them in my lunchbox and taking them home you know I, why on earth I started doing that I couldn't possibly explain but I just thought they were really cool and there were all these different ones and they turned into the most beautiful moths and butterflies if well many of them died if I'm honest but some of them made in it your through. lunchbox yeah, well, yeah, I, and yeah, I had to feed them the right, the right plants and everything, which, of course, when I was five, I probably didn't get right most of the time. But yeah, and, and so I've, I guess, you know, it's been, it's been a, a privilege to be able to kind of follow that childhood hobby and turn it into a career. You know, it's, uh, it's rather nice. People pay me to chase around after bumblebees. What, what could be better? Nothing, honestly, nothing could be better. So, did you then go off to university and do something? Did you study? What did you do? Yeah, you know, I, I biology was my favourite subject at school, so I did biology at university, and then I wasn't quite sure what to do. I had this idea that I might work for a kind of conservation NGO or something. Um, I took a bit Me of time out, <laughs> cycled across the Sahara, or tried to anyway, and uh, and then I ended up. And I, I couldn't get a job in conservation, so I thought I'd, um, uh, I, I saw a PhD advertised, and I thought oh, I'd give that a go. And it was on butterfly ecology um, <laughs> back in Oxford, so I, um, I did that. And then I, I kind of by the end of that, I was hooked, and I never, never really left university. Essentially, I kind of worked <laughs> my way up, jumped around a bit for Southampton and Scotland, and now down in Sussex, but. Uh, um, and for the last about 30 years, I've been focused on on bumblebees. I was just about to say that. So I know I've read all your books, I have to say. And um, why do you think there's a decline? Why, why do I to tell our listeners why is there a decline in bees? There yeah. definitely is a decline. Yes. The, I mean, there has been a, a decline in wild bees. Um, I should say honeybees, which, are, you know, the domesticated species. Um, have actually not declined globally. They're doing okay because they're looked after by beekeepers. They they have lots of problems and colonies die more often than they should, and so on. But overall, they're they're not doing badly. But wild bees, including the bumblebees and all the other solitary bees and so on, are overwhelmingly in decline. And um, 
I mean, it's largely loss of habitat, loss of flowers, you know, uh, particularly our flowery meadows. Um, Britain used to have uh, about 7 million acres of, of hay meadows and chalk downland in the 1930s and so 90 years ago. And in, in between 1930 and 1987, we destroyed 97% of our flower-rich meadows. Um, so pretty much all of them. And there's, you know, just a few little fragments left here and there. Um, but that, that was a really, you know, great habitat for, for bees, particularly bumblebees. Um, there's other problems too, things like, uh, you know, the, the increase in use in pesticides in recent decades, um, which, you know, just seems to never end. And we keep inventing new ones and it's, it's a pretty sordid and messy area that I've done quite a lot of research in and uh, it, it's pretty clear that you know if you spray the landscape over and over again with poisons designed to kill insects well shouldn't be terribly surprised if insects aren't thriving you know um, it's a bit of a no-brainer um, so so that's contributing um, and, and I guess broadly the way farming has tended to change since the second world war you know it's become much more industrialized uh, much bigger fields fewer hedges um, the move away from hay meadows to silage fields and improved grasslands, you know, even the west of Britain, which which isn't where there isn't much arable farming and it tends to be more pasture. The pasture has become very boring. You know, there's no flowers. It's all been reseeded with ryegrass um, and has lots of fertilizers poured onto it. So it's it's a kind of, you know, the west of England is a is a green desert and the east of England is an arable desert, really. Um, I, I don't. Yeah. I'm not having a go at farmers. They're they've been kind of no. driven <laughs> by you know subsidies, Cost. costs, the supermarket squeezing them, you know, changing policies. Uh, they they've just tried to survive and do whatever they have to do to to make a living. But unfortunately, you know, we 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 push them down this this route of kind of intensive monoculture farming, and that that really has been pretty devastating for our wildlife. Yeah. I mean, I live in Milton Keynes, which always seems to people the, the area where there's no vegetation. But of course, it's quite the opposite of that with the Parks Trust. And I've started to see rewilding happening along road sides and road verges and that sort of thing, which is quite interesting. Is, is that something that we can do? Yeah. I mean, the, the, so, you know, it's nice that there are lots of things we can do. You know, I mean, many of the sort of big environmental issues like climate change and, you know, rainforest being chopped down and stuff like that you, we all feel quite helpless about it but actually you know bee declines insect declines we can all get involved in fixing and and you know either in our gardens by making them more more wildlife friendly if we're lucky enough to have a garden or by badgering the local council to to not cut the road verges to perhaps sow them with wildflowers if need be uh, the roundabouts the parks the cemeteries all these other kind of urban green spaces that are often just mown over and over again and a kind of knee-jerk, entirely unnecessary basis very often um, at, you know, considerable expense in terms of manpower and petrol and so on. Um, and, you know, we, we could turn our, our urban areas, our towns, our villages and our road verges and so on into a kind of national network of of insect-friendly habitat, and that would be brilliant, I think. And it's something that yeah. <laughs> it's already happening. You know, that's what's kind of cool about it is is not everywhere, but there are quite a few councils that have dramatically reduced mowing. Um, there, there are lots of people 
wildlife gardening, trying to increase biodiversity, planting wildflowers and, and you know, not deadheading so regularly and all these other things. Um, so it's it's quite an exciting time, I think. You know, there's real potential that uh, we could, um, uh, you know, do a lot for nature just in our back back gardens. I know. I remember listening to you once and um, I then went and built quite a large natural pond which I love because it's completely inundated with insects. And I pass it to walk my dog every day and I'd stop and have a look and see if there are any more. And then the rewilding was quite interesting. I've left one area of our lawn completely and the wildflowers that come up is amazing. And obviously we're growing British flowers here as a cut flower grower. So we've got lots and lots of flowers and lots and lots of insects. Um, but I think just small areas of just doing wildflower meadows or rewilding or adding a pond or not even a pond a sink with some water in is a start yeah we can all do something can't we we can and it's surprising you know how effective these simple things can be as you say you know a little pond even a, a sink or anything sunk in the ground um insects turn up you know within hours it seems to me you know you'll get pond skaters flying in water beetles uh, water boatmen um all sorts of stuff just turns up you know on its own you don't have to do anything um and just as you also mentioned you know reducing mowing i i've got a friend who's started um well stopped mowing her front lawn it's quite it's not very big it's not much bigger than the room i'm sitting in but in the very first year she had orchids appeared and she had no idea where they came from or how they got there um but, uh, you know, how cool is that? I'm, I'm rather envious, actually. I, I've got a much bigger lawn and I never get any orchids, so I'd love to. I definitely haven't got orchids in mine. Lots of wildflowers, but no orchids. Maybe that will come. Who know? I mean, obviously, it's come from animals or birds or something and something's happened and it's... Well, orchids have really, really tiny seeds. They're, they're all, almost microscopic. They, they, they look like powder when you see them. So I guess they're probably pretty, you know, blow on the wind or easily carried on the feet of animals or whatever. I don't know, but uh, but yeah, who knows Brilliant. what might might arrive in your garden if you just uh, you know provide the right conditions. So, what does it mean to our planet? Why should we be concerned about the decline of both insects and bees in particular? What what does it mean to us all? Well, so you can make a kind of economic argument as to why we need to look after insects, you know, because they do we we directly depend upon the things they they do, and you can you can quantify it in terms of you know the crop yield that they provide for insect pollinated crops for example and uh, um, so obviously that's the most relevant thing for bees and and very roughly if i remember the figures correctly about 75 percent of the crops we grow in the world um, need pollinators not necessarily bees but often bees um, to give a good harvest and that includes most of the fruit and veg um that that we grow and things like coffee and chocolate too um and yeah i've seen calculations that you know globally that's worth i think 220 billion dollars a year or something you know but those figures are a bit meaningless i think it's more the, the critical point is actually we just couldn't feed everybody a, a good diet without all those crops um and other insects do other stuff which is less well appreciated um, you know they they recycle they recycle cow pats and dead bodies and tree trunks and leaves and they keep the soil healthy and they help to control pests and they do you know basically that our ecosystems wouldn't work without insects so we do need them um and you you know i've, I've used that argument many 
Times and presented it to politicians and so on. But actually, I've always had this slight sort of nagging doubt about that argument. So I'm not sure it really is all that compelling. Because, uh, well, for me, the, th- the reason I like insects is because I like insects. I think they're really cool. They're beautiful. They're amazing. They're weird. They have this incredibly strange life cycle sometimes. And, and you know, I, I, it's not because they pollinate coffee plants or, or strawberry plants that I value them. And actually, also the other problem with pinning everything on these kind of ecosystem service arguments is there are probably loads of insects that that don't do anything particularly important. Um, and, and so does that mean they're all, you know, they can all just die and we don't care about those? That seems like a really sad way to, to view the world. So I, I, I kind of think we need to maybe, you know, change our attitude a bit and reconnect with nature and realise we're, we're part of it and work with it rather than always, you know, trying to kill and control and seeing nature as a commodity that we can use and abuse as we like. Um, I maybe I'm being a bit fanciful in hoping that we can get to that, but that that's my kind of uh, vision of a, a more uh, benign future. No, I, I mean I'm with you. I think it will come back and bite us in the bum if we don't do something about it. I think unless we work with nature and stop from trying to control it, um, I must be one of the only people who love earwigs. That's my favourite earwigs. I love earwigs. They eat. They eat dahlias, but I found a way of capturing them and releasing them, so that's fine. I do earwig traps, and that's fine, and they're quite happy in my little straw houses. Yeah. And then I release them, and I think they're quite fun. They're they're really cool. I mean, and also they are um, predators of of pests. They they do a really good job in orchards of hoovering up aphids at night. You know, they're nocturnal, and they scurry up the tree trunk in, in the night and spend all night eating you know small small pest insects and somebody once worked out that the um a, a healthy population of earwigs in an apple orchard can kills as many pests as if you, if you were to spray that orchard three times a year with insecticides um so you know say it saves a farmer a lot of money and is a much more benign way of controlling pests just by looking after your earwigs you know um plus they're they're quite fascinating, you know. They 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 show parental care, which is quite unusual in the insect world. The female makes a little nest and lays her eggs in it and guards them. And then when they hatch, she looks after them and feeds them until they're about half grown. And then she shoes them sort of out of the nest. Um, she's not a perfect mother because at that point, she if they don't go, she will eat them. Um, but you know, um, <laughs> male eggs have two penises and they can choose which one to use. So it is a, a little. Uh, and in an emergency, they'll snap one off as well, which is uh, to make make a quick getaway. So, I mean, earwigs, there's just this whole world of cool stuff going on there that nobody, and, and yet most people are terrified of them for no good reason at yes. all. I don't really yeah. understand, you know, these tiny little insects with their little tiny pincers and people think they're going to, you know, sting, bite them, sting them, pinch them or whatever. It's nuts. It's the same as spiders. I can't understand that either. I mean... It's most people go back to childhood, don't they? Or a parent who's frightened of them. I can't honestly can't write legs. You couldn't be a flower farmer living in the country if you hated insects. No, that would be tricky, I imagine. It would be really tricky. So I came across your slogan quite recently about keep peat in bogs, not bags. I thought it was amazing. What a clever thing to say. And why is that? A lot of people buy peat free, not really understanding why they buy it. Um, 
there's been a bit of an issue with peat-free compost recently with what's in it and all the woody bits and it's not always the greatest medium that it ever was and we really need to make our own is ultimately what we should be doing. But why, um, talk to me a little bit about peat in bogs and why it should be left there and not in bags, you know, why we shouldn't put it in bags. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, there are really compelling arguments for not using peat in gardens and there are good alternatives. I know some peat-free composts are a bit rubbish. Um, but there are award-winning, really good um, peat-free compost. So you don't need to buy the stuff. And you shouldn't because, I mean, first and foremost, um, climate change. Peat, peat is a massive carbon store. Natural peat bogs, they slowly grow by about a millimetre a year in depth. And that's, that's, they're basically an accumulation of, of dead moss in, in waterlogged soils where the oxygen can't get to it and break it down. And that they're massive stores of carbon. The peat bogs of Britain store more carbon, 10 times as much carbon as all of our forests do. Um, so, you know, but if you dig them up and you, you dig the peat out of the ground and, and dry it and oxygen gets to it, it starts to oxidize. It starts to become carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So all the peat that we dig out of the ground to put in our gardens will eventually end up as carbon dioxide adding to, to climate change. So that's the biggest reason we should not be digging. I mean, essentially, it's like a fossil fuel. It's, it's you know, uh, it's very similar to coal and oil. It's, it's plant material that's accumulating uh, over time, locking up carbon. Um, and, you know, we all understand that we shouldn't be using coal anymore. Well, peat's basically the same thing, just hasn't quite compressed into, into a rock yet. Um, but then peat bogs are also amazing wildlife habitats. They're internationally rare. They have all sorts of weird and wonderful insects and plants and raft spiders, sundews and all sorts of cool stuff. Loads of species of dragonflies live in peat bogs. Um, and, and so, you know, and again, if you dig them up, you're destroying all of that. Um, so we really need to, you know, to, 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 to destroy that beautiful natural habitat and damage the climate just so that we can have a slightly easier time of growing a few pretty plants just it just doesn't add no. up you know <laughs> it's so selfish to do that um and people need to need to get a grip and you know i, I can't believe we're still arguing about this and that, that the i don't know why they haven't banned it i know yeah, well, I the mean, government it's like... says it's going to ban um, domestic use um i think next year at the end of next year um, but whether it'll actually stick to that, it doesn't seem to stick to much these days. No. <laughs> um, and it's not banning commercial use. And that's, you know, that's probably by far the, the, biggest. the biggest use. And it's not going to be banning sale of plants reared in peat-based compost from garden centres. So it's still a real half-assed job, really. They just need to ban the stuff and be done. Completely. And, you know, the, I mean, we, you know, 1988, I finished my degree in environmental science a long time ago. And we were discussing it then. Yeah. And we were discussing, you know, carbon and we were discussing ozone layers and we were discussing ecology and bees at that point. And we are now 40 years later. It's and we really progressed. It's really sad, it's isn't depressing. it? Yeah, I, I can remember the, the, these debates so many years ago, too. And uh, it's, so, it's awful that we've made such little progress, really. I mean, you know, there are now alternatives, which I'm not sure there were in the 1980s. Um, no. Yeah. But, you know, given that those alternatives already exist, they're well established, they work, um, this, they would scale up really quickly if, if government said, right, as of the end of this year, you know, 
peat sales are banned. Every all use of peat is banned. Importing of peat is banned, and that's really important because there's no point just saying we can't dig peat out of the ground in the UK. Most of the peat in garden centres is being imported from Ireland and Estonia and all sorts of other places, and that's just as bad as digging our yeah. own peat up. It just exports the damage. Um, so we, yeah, a total ban. And in no time at all, all the, the companies producing the alternatives would, would have a whale of a time and would all be able to gear up and sales would increase for them and we'd all be happily peat free and job would be one one of you know, it's there are some really difficult to tackle environmental issues in this world and that isn't one of them. We could do it overnight, you know. <laughs> yes. That's what's so frustrating. We've got alternatives, they're there and it's easy. Yeah. So actually it is one of the easiest things to tackle. Um at very little cost, if honestly, it's just, yeah, we could get onto that. So um, tell me about the books you've written. As I say, I am a bit of a fan, a bit of a fan, followed you for a long time. Um, Bumblebees, The Garden Jungle and Silent Earth, the recent one. Tell us about the books and the amount of papers and journals that you've written. You must be an avid writer, is all I say. Uh, I quite, I mean, I, I, for most of my career, I wrote scientific kind of boring dry papers that were published in you know scientific journals and and that serves a purpose but I got quite frustrated with it in the end because it not many people read those papers I mean they're they're often behind a paywall anyway so that unless you're at a university you can't even access a lot of them which is a real shame um and you know I was working on on sort of why bumblebees were declining and trying to understand the drivers and and what we could do about it um trying out you know working on farms with different agri-environment schemes for bees and so on and um and and i felt it was a bit of a waste of time ultimately because nobody was listening you know no 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 farmers were reading the papers we published no politician was paying the slightest bit of attention no nothing was actually happening to help the bees you know we knew what needed to be done um so I, I guess I, I, in more recent years, I've taken different routes. I started the Bumblebee Conservation Trust back in 2006 to try and kind of, you know, actually do something on the ground, create habitat and so on. And I started writing kind of popular books about insects, bumblebees and, and all the rest to try and kind of engage people and infuse them and, and draw them in and get them involved in, in doing things themselves. Um, so I, I guess my career has kind of mutated over time. And I really, I, I do enjoy the, the the sort of popular writing rather than scientific writing because it's much freer and you can have opinions and, you know, you don't have to kind of, you know, you can tell stories and have fun with it rather than just having to kind of present dry facts all the time and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I guess I have written quite a bit. Um, <laughs> someone did say to me the other day, they they'd... Um, because I think I've published seven popular science books now, or sort of popular books, starting with The Sting in the Tail, which is quite a jolly book about bumblebees. There's a, there's a few, you know, there's a little bit about their declines, but it's mostly about just how interesting they are and their weird lives and so on. Anyway, someone had, had, had read all my books in chronological order, um, back to back, and, they said, <laughs> and then they contacted me and said, I'm quite worried about you. Um, because your books are getting darker each time, you know, <laughs> are, are you having some kind of breakdown or crisis or whatever? And I hadn't thought about it, but but it's true they have become darker. You know, the newest one, uh, Silent Earth, is 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 
is I mean it's a, it's about insect declines globally and and what's driving them and what and ultimately what we can do about it and it tries to be positive and I you know I do the final quarter of the book is all about what we can do to fix these problems but you know it's it is quite a, easy to get depressed by the facts you know because it, it, the world isn't going well right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, 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 so I, I, you know, I deliberately wrote a book to be much harder hitting in the hope of sort of, you know, uh, sh- shaking people into doing something um, because we need to, you know, we, we really need to, to, to change our ways or else, or else, you know, I mean, I've got kids. Most of us have got kids. And, and uh, as, as I've said many times, you know, I find it utterly bizarre that we would, we would all do anything for our children or our grandchildren, apart from leave them a decent planet to live on. You know, it doesn't make any sense, does it? But uh, No, absolutely no sense. Anyway, no we have to keep trying and, 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 and things are changing. You know, think people's attitudes are, ch- are changing, awareness is changing. People are getting more involved in doing things. Um, whether it's fast enough, I, I doubt. I mean, you know, the, the, the overall sort of, you know, tide of change is in the wrong direction, unfortunately. Um, and, yeah, I mean, some really sad statistics. You know, we're losing roughly, it's been estimated, about one species goes extinct every hour on this planet. So, you know, while we're chatting, something's Ooh. probably disappeared somewhere. Um and so, you know, whatever we do, it's too late for some creatures. Um, but it needn't be too late for most of them. And, uh, you know, that, that the key thing is that the more we do, the better it will be, or the less bad it will be, depending on how you want yeah. to look at it. The more people that get involved, the more people we talk to, the more people we podcast to. This is global. This podcast is global. The more people that download it. It's the only thing we can do because you're right. You would do anything for our children, anything at all, except save the planet. Yeah, it's 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 totally illogical, isn't it? When you stop to think about it, and we all know we're doing it, and we're just a bit lazy. We can't be, you know, long haul flights. We know we we shouldn't really take long haul flights unless it's absolutely necessary. We we should. We all know the things we do, but it we it's sometimes it's just easier to jump in the car or get on a plane or whatever or. You know, and we buy foods that perhaps we know we shouldn't. We, you know, we all have a bigger footprint than we need to. And we just do need to rein it in and, you know, sort of try to move away from this kind of consumerist based society where we just use so much stuff, you know. Uh, and Maybe we're going to be forced. Maybe now we're going to be forced well, to use less stuff. And maybe that's the planet, like I say, coming back and going, I told you so. Well, I, I think it, it is. I mean, some of the certainly some of the problems we're now seeing globally are, are you know, signs that we've, we've damaged the, the ability of the planet to support us. I mean, climate change is part of the reason why we've got a, you know, a migration crisis with people around the world fleeing their countries um, and wanting to get into other countries which often don't welcome them with open arms. Well, that, a lot of that's driven by the fact that we've damaged the climate, we've damaged the soils. So that people can't grow food in their own countries. Um, so you know, nature is starting to kick us in the bum. I'm afraid, and uh, it's going to get worse unless we unless we sort it out. And we can't have that, Dave, because your next book will be even darker. <laughs> so are you planning? Are you planning another book? Actually, no. So so I've already <laughs> just about finished um, a 
the first draft of a children's kind of insect encyclopedia, um, which is very jolly, has hardly any depressing stuff in it at all. And it's all about just basically the cool world of insects and nice things about them and and amazing examples of some of the more peculiar insects in the world, just to try and, you know, get kids infused just like I was. And, um, you know, I, I, I think kids are an easy sell. They love creepy crawlies. They get, I mean, I, I, one of my favorite things to do is to take a bunch of, you know, eight-year-olds out into a wood um, or a meadow uh, and with some pots and see what they can catch. And they get so excited. They just love it. Um, but sadly, most kids, you know, perhaps don't get the chance to, to do that. And so they end up frightened of insects when they're older. And um, so, yeah, so this new book is... is it's a jolly book. Yeah, just to try and <laughs> And get... when is that one released, Dave? When are you going to be... It could be one? ages because it's all going to be illustrated <laughs> yet. So I'm afraid I, I, I'm, I, I can't give you a date and it, it could be a, a, quite a way off yet. But it's... Keep us posted. Yeah. I will put all your books and everything in the show notes too. So um, tell us a little bit before we wrap up about the Bee Conservation Trust, because I know you started that. What, where is that now? Oh, it's, it's been really great, very successful in the end. I mean, it was an absolute shambles when we started it because it, it was, you know, we, we, <laughs> I started it in my kind of university office, basically, with no money and no staff and no idea what the hell I was doing. Um, uh, in 2006, that was, um, and I, I, I ran it for the first five years and it slowly grew and, and we ended up with a few paid staff and a little bit of money from the lottery. And, um, but now it's got about, I, uh, well, I, I've, I've lost track, something like 50 staff. Um, it's, um, wow. around the country, the head office is in Scotland where I was based when it started, but it's got offices in, in the South and Eastley and it's got a Welsh officer and a Kent officer. And so the conservation officers in the field based all around the country. And it's involved in loads of projects, creating flower rich meadows, restoring some of those beautiful meadows that we've lost so much of in the last century, um, working with other organizations, promoting wild bee friendly gardening and just generally doing stuff to help you know i mean in the grand scheme it's probably a drop in the ocean but but it's really nice you can go and walk through a meadow full of flowers that that wouldn't have existed if it weren't for the for the for the bumblebee conservation trust so if anyone's interested check out their website there's loads of good information there about what you can do to help bumblebees um and put that in the show notes as well yeah, yeah. please do <laughs> and um so, Dave, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. We're on the same page and we both believe in the same things. I'm trying to encourage flower farmers to grow pesticide-free, peat-free and grow wildflower meadows and have ponds and be completely ecological. And the more people that become cut flower farmers, the more flowers we'll have. And, and so on. That's I'm coming up from, from that angle. So thank you very much for joining us. I know our listeners will follow you, have a look at your books, have a look at your website, Bee Conservation Trust. So I'm delighted that you joined me today. Next week, I'm joined by Alice Hare of Brodia Florals in Nottingham, where she discusses how she went from a corporate career in pharmacy to become a flower farmer. And it'd be really interesting to talk to her. So I hope you'll join me. And thank you very much again to Dave. And we'll see you next Friday. 
I look forward to next week's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate and review on your podcast app. We do have some wonderful free resources on our website at thecutflowercollective.co.uk. We also have two free Facebook communities, which we'd love you to join. For farmers or those who want to be flower farmers, we have Cut Flower Farming, Growth and Profit in Your Business. And our other free Facebook group is Learn with the Cut Flower Collective for those starting out on their flower journey. All of the links are below. I look forward to getting to know you all.